Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Driving value that matters on car, home and travel insurance. Now that's sound. But first this morning, Deepak Chopra was in Ireland this week as a guest of the Irish Film and Television Academy. Born in India, he qualified as a doctor there before moving to the United States in the late 1960s. Now he's one of the world's best-known advocates for wellness and alternative medicine. He's written over 90 books. He was a regular contributor to Oprah Winfrey's TV show and he practices what he preaches. Deepak Chopra, it's great to have you here in the RT studio. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. You got an award on Thursday night from the Irish Film and Television Academy. Uh, How did that go? Did you enjoy it? It went amazingly well and I was delighted to reconnect with Jim Sheridan, whom I knew from the past. (laughs) The audience was amazing. The award is very flattering. I'm humbled by it. And um, I just loved everybody there the audience and the organisers. I was thrilled to be there. And I heard from somebody who was there. Jim Sheridan gave you your award, yes. of course, but that at the end you did some meditation with a room of, of over 400 people. And many of the people who work in my industry, they're quite sceptical, but they all apparently went silent. Yes, yes. It was actually the most uh, interesting part of the evening because there was spin drop silence for the entire thing. And people were quite... Uh, I emotionally moved. Why do you think that is, actually? Meditation has a way of bringing out stresses that have been hiding in the secret passages and the dark alleys of and the ghost-filled attics of your mind. And when you suddenly release them, there's a sense of release, there's a sense of relief. The remarkable thing about you, of course, is Everyone today is aware of mindfulness and wellness and minding our mind. But you were doing that donkeys years ago. I mean, how did you first get into this area? I was a resident uh, in medicine in the Boston area and I was actually quite burnt out myself. Uh, This is now a long time ago. I was maybe late 20s. But I was smoking heavily. I used to drink, uh, at least on weekends, quite heavily. And, uh, you know, one day I put a pacemaker in a patient, put him on a ventilator and went outside the hospital to smoke a cigarette. And I felt totally disgusted, (laughs) threw it away and never touched alcohol after that. And when you define wellness... What do you actually mean by wellness? I'm conscious of people listening this morning. Probably many of them are quite tired. They might have children running around. Like, what is wellness? Well, wellness and well-being are two different things. Wellness is probably what you get when you get an evaluation. What's your cholesterol level? What's your blood pressure? How's your immune system functioning, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Well-being is a state of being or consciousness where you spontaneously experience a joyful, energetic body, loving, compassionate heart, a reflective, alert mind, and most importantly, lightness of being. No stress whatsoever. And I hear everyone laughing. How do you do that in your life? How do you get? a stress-free life? 
Well, I realized a long time ago there's only two choices. One is resistance to existence, and the other is what we call flow or peak performance or peak living. And resistance to existence comes from four illusions. The first illusion is the illusion of predictability. You know, I was supposed to get here day before yesterday in the morning. Every flight that I booked got cancelled. Ultimately, actually, it was 24 hours late. But I had already accepted unpredictability as the nature of existence. So the first illusion is predictability. There's no such thing. Even the weather, you can predict likelihood, but not certainty. Uh, traffic jams the same way. Um, and illness the same way. Or life the same way. Relationships the same way. Once you realize that predictability is an illusion, the second realization is control is an illusion. There's no such thing because everything has so many factors influencing every incident is literally a conspiracy of improbabilities. So control is an illusion. The third thing is identity is an illusion. There's no fixed identity. Say, who's Deepak? Well, which Deepak do you mean? The child, the teenager, the adult, all the way to dusty death. And in fact, identity is constantly transforming. If it didn't, you'd be worried. And if your child didn't grow up to be a teenager or your teenager didn't grow up to be an adult, you'd be worried. So there's no such thing as a fixed identity. And finally, there's no such thing as time. That's also an illusion. Once you recognize these are illusions, you don't resist what's happening right now. You go with the flow. But when you say there's no such thing as time, hmm? What do you mean by that? Time is the internal dialogue of the ego. So there's something called clock time and there's something called perceived or experienced time. We say, I'm running out of time. When people say that, their heart rate speeds up, their blood pressure goes up. If they have all the time in the world, everything is different. If they fall in love, time doesn't exist. So time, as Einstein showed in another way, is relative. It, uh, it depends, in his mathematics, it depend. metaphorically speaking, it's very interesting, on the speed of the observer. You know, So if you're going at the speed of light, there's no time. If you're near a black hole, time slows down. If you enter the singularity, there's no time. So time is a human construct for how we experience life, which is really cyclical and circular. If you look at some traditional shamanic traditions and even people who had psychedelic experiences, they have a more fractal, holographic, holomovement rendering of time, which is universal. And it's not Greenwich Mean Time. That's a colonial <laughs> Uh, history. We don't say Botswana meantime or Bangladesh meantime. We say Greenwich meantime. We made it up just like yeah, we made yeah. up everything. Latitude, longitude, money, Wall Street. These are human constructs. They're not fundamental reality. Fundamental reality, there's no time. Time occurs when there's subject-object split, so which means I'm the subject of experience, everything else is an object. For you, you're the subject of experience, and everything else is an object. But in reality, subject and object are the flow of the universe. They're one. So how do you practice 
what you preach to use a strange word in your real life. I mean, I read somewhere that you say you never worry about anything. Is that possible? Yeah, I don't anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. How do you do that? I don't anticipate and I don't regret. I'm just with what's happening right now. And if you ask me what's happening right now, it seems wonderful. The present moment doesn't have any conflict. It's only the past and the future, which is in your imagination. So stress is the worst use of imagination. Creativity is the best use of imagination. So instead of being stressed, do write a song. And I'm conscious of maybe people listening, Deepak, who go, but I've just lost my job or I have very little money or I have a child with a profound special need. So I suppose life throws up things that are very stressful. So how do people like that deal with that and not worry? Well, there's something called the happiness formula, happiness equation. So 50% of your experience of happiness every day depends on whether you see these situations as problems or you see these situations as opportunities. During COVID, 99% of people saw problems. A few created Zoom, a few created messenger RNA technology, a few wrote a couple of books I did and I offered new meditation. So even during the COVID, some of us actually saw that as an opportunity to help humanity and also have insights. You know, as we were caged up in our little caves, um, nature was celebrating. Fish were returning back to their breeding grounds. Birds were singing. You could see the Himalayas from 500 miles away. The stars were clear. People were breathing in Hyderabad. Well, that was good, wasn't it? But we didn't learn the lesson. We come back and we do the same things over and over again. So 50% of your happiness comes from just your attitude to what's happening. No matter how problematic the situation is, there's always something to be grateful for, number one. Number two, there's always a bigger advantage in the adversity. About 10% of your happiness comes from money. So if you win the lottery, you'll be very ecstatic. But in six months, you'll plateau. One year, you'll be back to where you started from. And about 40% of your happiness comes from the choices you make every day, either for pleasure, like alcohol, sex, drugs, partying, entertainment, shopping. They are actually, people enjoy that and they are happy, but only transiently. Real happiness comes from fulfillment, which means you have meaning and purpose in your life and you know how to make other people happy. That's it. Simple. Because you love that Bob Marley quote about money, don't you? Tell my listeners about that. Bob Marley's, um, in one of his songs, says some people are so poor, all they have is money. Mm. So abundance is the progressive realization of worthy goals, the ability to have love and compassion, and most importantly, to use your imagination for creativity and not for stress. And you mentioned gratitude there, and as I said, 50 years ago, Deepak Chopra, like you were talking about things like this, wellness, mindfulness, being grateful. But when and why did you make that transition from being a medical doctor to saying, no, I want to actually give all my life, my intelligence, my wisdom 
to looking at alternative types of medicine? Well, now what we call alternative is becoming mainstream. I have professorships in three medical schools, Mount Sinai uh, in New York. I teach occasionally at the University of California Medical School, San Diego, University of Central Florida Medical School. So actually we now know scientifically, even taking the example of gratitude, when you experience gratitude, inflammatory markers go down, uh, immune system gets fine-tuned, the molecules of emotion like serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin and opiates go up, immunomodulation occurs, the brain activity changes, and you can see this now on CAT scans and MRIs and blood tests. So it's not anything hocus-pocus. Even what people used to call the placebo effect, now we know that somebody who thinks that something is going to work, they actually activate genes for healing. So it's not placebo cannot be dismissed. You actually are activating genes that decrease the stress response and facilitate self-regulation, homeostasis, a decrease in inflammation, and a change in immunomarkers. So what I was saying 40 years ago was based on ancient wisdom traditions, but there wasn't the science to look in the brain, mm -hmm. to look at the immune system, to look at gene activity. We did a study on a meditation retreat uh, uh, 2012, which was published in Nature, and one of our collaborators was Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the enzyme telomerase, which regulates your biological clock at the gene genetic level. She knew nothing about what we were doing. She was just a Nobel laureate who likes to measure things. The telomerase level went up 40%, and it was mind-boggling because there's no drug in the world that will do that. But one week of a meditation retreat changed your biomarkers for aging by 40%. Now, we had difficulty getting that study published. Finally, it was published in Nature, which is one of the most prestigious journals, Nature Translational Psychiatry. And... You know, even with the Nobel laureate, we had difficulty because it was so remarkable. But now that study has been replicated by other institutions. Our study included people from Harvard, from UCSF, from Mount Sinai, from University of California, San Diego, and from Duke University. So we had a, you know, blue chip investigator mm. team, and yet we couldn't get the study published uh, easily. So that is the bias that was there. It's changing. It's totally changing now because if you don't understand gene activity, mind, body, emotions, relationships, eating, breathing, digestion, metabolism, elimination, regular relationships, emotions, as all playing a part in your biology, then you're behind times. You should not be practicing medicine. And you are actually an endocrinologist. So you I'm a neuroendocrinologist. Yeah, yes. so you do know this area very well. Maybe when you said there was hard to get it published, is it because, Deepak, people are concerned that other people will hijack what you do and try to use it to say, oh, if you have, you know, cancer in some way, you don't need the normal medicines and you just need to, you know, think yourself better and you'll be better. So people are nervous of medicines that may be used to substitute for proper stuff like chemotherapy? 
Well, actually, now we have very precise ways by looking at gene expression to see which cancers will respond and which won't to what kind of treatment. In the past, chemotherapy and radiation were basically indiscriminately used. Now, because of the precision in genomics, metabolomics, proteomics, and many other things, you can actually know which patient will respond to what kind of therapy. And soon, by the way, immunotherapy is going to take over. So chemotherapy and radiation might get slowly more obsolete. I think they are, basically, in their current stage. You know, you go to a chemotherapist, he's going to give you chemotherapy in the same way as you go to a baker who's going to sell you bread. You go to uh, your surgeon, he's going to sell you surgery, especially where there's monetary advantage to that. So, what has happened now with the precision with which we can diagnose a cancer? If you have a BRCA gene for cancer, for example, Angelina Jolie had that, that's a 100% guarantee that you will get cancer, in which case you need preventive mastectomy, which she had, which was the right thing to do. Now, even for that, in the next few years, we're going to have something called gene editing. So metaphorically speaking, you'll be able to cut and paste genes the way you cut and paste your emails. But remember, that's only 5% of cancer. So as science advances, you know, some of the biggest advances in science today, um, in medical science, one is AI, because the AI can correlate everything, your mind, your body, your emotions, your nutrition, and your biology. So AI is number one, I would say. Second is gene editing. The third is something called messenger RNA. The fourth, believe it or not, is the psychedelic revolution. And the fifth is consciousness. When we bring all these things together, you have a system of medicine, a future of medicine that is unprecedented. And it's not mainstream, it's not alternative, it's not integrative, it's something that works. Good medicine should be that which works. And you don't care whether you know you were trained in 18th century reductionist medicine or the 22nd century holistic medicine. And I know when it came to COVID, you mentioned it a short time ago, you did take the vaccine. You're not anti-vax. So how do you respond, Deepak, I suppose, to people who might follow your advice on yoga, wellness, meditation, but then they take it further to the point that they won't accept any conventional medicine? See, I grew up in India where I saw my friends and my relatives dying of tuberculosis of smallpox, either dying or being permanently scarred, of polio, and of course, even in those days, measles and diphtheria and whooping cough. I and my family and my relatives, my father was a cardiologist, we saw thousands of lives saved because of vaccines. So maybe I have a bias. Uh, but I don't think so. I look at the evidence and the evidence says vaccines protect you and uh, can minimize morbidity and mortality. And if you want to take the risk and not do it, that's your responsibility. Everybody has a choice. But 
Look at the evidence, okay? That's all. Whether it's holistic medicine or meditation. Now, you know, meditation used to be 35 things, this strange thing. But now look at, just go online and look at the published studies on meditation. You won't be able to keep up with the literature because it's tens of thousands of articles in peer-reviewed journals. So we should get rid of these ideas, whether it's alternative or this. Is it good medicine? Does it work or it doesn't work. Why do you feel meditation matters? And I'm conscious there'll be lots of people this morning who've maybe never meditated. Like in your daily life, how much of a role does meditation play? My personal Your own personal life. How much do you meditate? And when I'm listening now maybe to a busy mom of three young children, she goes, I have no time to meditate. How do you put time away to meditate and what's the minimum amount you can meditate that will make a difference so to your life? So that's a very Western question. Fair uh, enough. And, uh, in fact, a very impractical question. Only busy people have time, in my opinion. It depends on what your priorities are. If you say, I don't have time, you'd probably need more of it than anybody else because you're stressed. Okay, no time. People who have that internal dialogue, I have no time. As I said, everything is fast in their biology and if they suddenly drop dead of a heart attack, then they fulfill the prophecy, I don't have time. I never had time. So that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's called death. Okay, start with that. And then the real reason to do meditation is actually not stress relief. That's a Western idea also. The real reason to do meditation is to get in touch with your spirit, with your soul, which is the source of all experience, including your creativity, how you organize your life, whether you have a joyful, energetic body, a loving heart or creativity, those are worthwhile things. So actually meditation allows you to do less and achieve more. And in my case, do nothing and achieve everything. Because you advocate that people should spend more time doing nothing. Is that yeah, correct? That's, I like that. It was Franz Kafka, I think, who said um, humanity's problems come from the inability to sit quietly and do nothing. Even meditation is an occupation. Even yoga is an occupation. Doing nothing is just being, which is our original spiritual state, and it's very joyful. It's playful, actually. It's, you see it in a baby. And you've an interesting take also on biological age. You mentioned earlier, I mean, you look amazing for a man in your 70s. You've worked hard all your life. 77 this next month. Well, even more extraordinary. So... What is biological age and how do you manage? You have a very young biological age, I gather. You've yeah. got to test it. Well, biological age used to be measured by skin thickness, the number of wrinkles, immune function, hormone levels, blood pressure, cholesterol. Now, biological age is measured by genetic activity, telomerase, the length of telomeres, many other very precise markers. So biological age is how old you are biologically. So you could be 60 chronologically and have the biological age of somebody who's 40. It could be the opposite. You're, you know, burnt out. You're 40 years old. You're smoking cigarettes. You're stressed out. Your biological age could be 60, even though you're 40. So biological age does not have to match 
chronological age. And then there's something called psychological age. You know, some people don't grow after eight years. Um, and they can, in the United States, that's actually an advantage. You can run for president, you know, if you stop <laughs> growing emotionally at eight. Uh, it gives you a chance to run for office. Uh, but... The fact is, there's emotional age, there's psychological age, there is chronological age, and there's spiritual age, which is timeless. So the more you experience your spiritual age, the less you experience the metabolism of time. There's a phrase in ancient wisdom traditions, time is the consumer and we are its food. So don't let time consume you. So as we finish our interview today, what would be your key advice to to people listening for in terms of wellness or living a good life? Well, the essential things are simple. Uh, good sleep every night, managing stress through breathing, yoga, mindfulness, whatever, exercise, mind-body coordination, good nutrition, balancing your biological rhythms, and most importantly, Emotional well-being, empathy, compassion, joy, love, and action in love. Those are the most important things. And uh, I would say if there's one thing, it would be if you're present to what is happening right now, there's no stress. Stress is either thinking about the future or regretting the past. Flow is more resistance to existence. Well, Deepak Chopra, thank you so much for being my guest this morning. Congratulations thank on you. your award from the Irish Film and thank Television this week and uh, come back to Ireland soon. Thank you very much. It was lots of fun to be with you. Take care. Thank, thank you, you, Deepak Chopra. We'll take a break.